Guys, whoa, I think it's working. Welcome to the Magic Academy podcast. Um, John Fletcher, who doesn't do many. Um, Rusty tends to do them all. He loves doing them. So welcome, Dr. James Bell, Richard Hill, MBE. Got to give you your formal titles. Guys, just want to start. You want to, do you want to give a quick intro? Tell us about yourself, why you've ended up talking to me on a Friday morning. You go first, Hilly. You're more important. Hilly, do you want to go? Yeah, I'll start then. Um, well, uh, I was pretty happy with the uh, a playing career I had, but unfortunately it does come to an end at some point. Uh, as with all those players at the end of the career, you've got to make a decision. I was fortunate to have some good people around me and I ended up taking on a dual role with Saracens post-playing of uh, academy and commercial. Over the couple of years, it then morphed more into the rugby side of it. Um, and, and you know, had a had an unbelievable uh, mentor group uh, to work with, which was quite fortunate. Uh, many of them have gone on, you know, as established Premiership players, but also you know, world class internationals. So that, that helps a, a bit in terms of your own understanding and own development. Uh, and then that ended in 2013. Had a year where there was not a lot going on. And then your good self, I joined up with you in 2014 as um, you know, part of the pathway at the RFU. And uh, incredible couple of years. Um, again, working, mentoring with some, some good players. And then in 2016, just uh, added to that role um, with the England management role. Uh, with with Eddie, um, so I've got you know two two roles really, uh, one supporting the the senior team and also working in the pathway. Mate, I love how humble you are. I had a bit of a playing career. Yeah, I read the other day that you were voted in the world's best ever team. I mean that's that's classic, Hilly. I'm enjoying that. Go on, Dr. James Bell, beat that. Um, yeah, Christ, Hilly, like downplay it. Um, uh, so I'm. I'll go back to, so from a sporting perspective, I was a pretty average professional golfer for a couple of years. Um, thought I was going to be a lot better than I was. Um, and in in the sort of period of not um, realising I wasn't going to make it as a golfer, uh, was studying for a sports science degree at Birmingham um, and uh, uh, basically got introduced to sports psychology via um, a lady called Joan Duda, who I didn't know at the time, but was was a sort of pretty world-leading um professor in, in psychology um so found her really interesting got sort of hooked around psychology it probably linked to trying to understand why i probably hadn't made it as a player um and then i've had this what i would say really lucky but really cool series of opportunities in in psychology so i my phd was sponsored by the england cricket board so i got five years working um with mainly with the pathway athletes um uh from sort of 90 or they, they have like an under 19 system whereas rugby has a 20 system but working with them and a little bit of stuff with the lions then sort of flukily managed to um find my my way to the nfl worked with the cleveland browns for a couple of seasons um which was amazing but incredibly difficult um i don't ever meet your sort of that's my favorite sport don't ever meet your heroes is the thing they it, that it probably put a bit of a downer on on my view of nfl because of actually seeing what it's really like um then very lucky to to come back to the RFU, met you two fine people. Um, I think Hilly was one of the first, I think you might have sent me the first email I ever received on my RFU email address because we had a we had a meeting up in, in York, didn't we? And realised that we were both starting at the same time and we might be able to work together. Um, so that was pretty cool. Worked for with, with you guys in the RFU for um, three years up till 2016. 
um, or back end of 2016. And then I worked for UK Sport um, in a couple of roles, but around culture and mental health um, uh, for the last three years. And then as of last month, have joined Changing Minds, uh, feeling the sort of pull of wanting to get back to actually supporting athletes, um, supporting coaches, being a bit more closer to sort of the front line, actually caring about whether teams win or lose, um, how people develop, whereas at UK Sport, it was a bit more of a strategic role. So I've been doing that for a month um, and involves me working directly with the LTA, but um, uh, also sort of trying to build or, or develop a team of psychologists um, uh, with them. Um, which I might talk more about, but yeah, that's me. Um. <coughs> Cheers, guys. Uh, Belly, you can go first. Describe Hilly in three words. Oh. Hilly, you better think about it. Cause um, caring. I'm going to say memory. He has the most ridiculous memory you've ever known, um, um, especially if you've ever like pissed him off. Don't do that. He'll remember forever. <laughs> um, like an elephant, isn't he? It is absolutely like an elephant, but his knowledge of players is just ridiculous. Um, and caring um, memory. And then you've got to say, like, I know it's a standard, but there is no one that wants to work harder than Hilly. So uh, work great, work ethic, whatever you want to say. One of those types of words. Yeah, he's a good grafter. Uh, Hilly, how would you describe uh, Belly? Sense. How do you mean? Uh, my brain can sometimes be a bit chaotic. I can't necessarily process things, but he can turn it into sense for me. Yeah, he's a good uh, sense maker, isn't he? Yeah. Understanding. So, and that would come with caring as well. Yeah, Belly, Belly wants all his athletes to do incredibly well and all the people he works with. Nice. Uh, Hilly, I'm going to afford you one more word that, that maybe Belly didn't say. How would you describe yourself in one word, a word that he hasn't used? Remind me of your three. Karen, <laughs> uh, memory, memory and, and graft. That's how I put it down. Hard work. Well, I'd like to think humble. Humble. Yeah, you're pretty humble, mate. <laughs> I love how you keep on introducing yourself. Hi, I'm Richard Hill. I'm thinking, most people know you're Richard Hill, mate. It's a rugby club. <laughs> um, uh, Belly, how would you describe yourself in one word? Word that hasn't been used. Um, I've... Giddy would be my, I, I like, I tend to be pretty like upbeat, um, enthusiastic, but giddy is, is how I'm described at my, when it, when it becomes a bit too much. So I'll go with that version. Um, yeah, I like giddy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you do get excited. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you like it. Um, <clears throat> mate, let's get, let's get into some sort of stuff. I want to start with culture because it's, it's a word that I hear a lot. I'm doing a reasonable amount across a number of sports, a bit in business. And I, and I hear this word more than anything. It's, it's like the word communication on a, on a pitch. Belly, just yet. Yeah, how how do you describe it? What stuff have you been doing? What would be useful for coaches and environments to know? Um, yeah, like you said, it's like such a such a massive word that, and I think people use it probably too much, or it's they they go to it too quickly. Um, I like if you wanted a word that I think is the most akin to it, that I think is maybe a better word is environment. It's the type of environment you're trying to create, but. I like um, Liz Nickel was the CEO at um, UK Sport and we actually used her catchphrase, which was it's basically it's what you hear, see and feel on a daily basis when you're in an environment. So and, and I'm, I realise that means it does capture everything, um, but it's, it's fundamental in my in my world. You could if you wanted to be really hardline, you could think about the physical environment like 
is it flash is it is it has it got all of the all of the infrastructure that you need but i personally think of it around this people and it's the types of interactions you have with people and people make cultures um if you want to go one step further i think leaders or i think people who are in leadership positions or people who have a significant influence over a group of people that doesn't necessarily need to be a head coach or a captain but it, but it often is um they are probably the ones that that shape culture the most um so if i went back to our under 18s experience or my experience with the rfp development pathway you shaped the the environment the culture of what it was like to be a player or a person or a staff member in that environment um uh and and the really good head coaches are are able to do that in a way that feels distinct but it, it and it and it but it plays to the, the different types of players and staff that you work with so really what's your uh I want to talk this about. Is quite interesting. Culture. This is when me and Belly work quite well together. So <laughs> we sit in a room. He gives like that sort of uh, poetry, and, and, I, and I just sit behind the guy. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm about. Yeah. Uh, what's the best cultures that you've been involved with, Hilly, and why? What sort of what sort of stuff was happening? Uh, best. Well, you've got your variety of the scale, haven't you? Uh, I, you know, you can go back as far as mini rugby. You know, I was one of those lucky ones who could play when you were five years old. And the the culture, the environment there was at a junior rugby club that's completely different. You're, you're looking at fun. You're looking at enjoyment. You're just looking about people who want to play it. And, you know, very fortunate in that sense at Salisbury that that occurred. And, you know, great group of mates who, you know, would still co- I'd still be in contact with from when we were six years old. Um, but then there's the, the high performance, the biggest high performance was obviously building up to 2003 and yeah, that was, there was definitely hardworking individuals, but they were also talented, skillful players. Um, but it was also making sure that we had the leadership that was around it, that, that galvanized it into a way that we could never take our foot off the pedal. You know, that's management and players. Uh, you were never allowed to feel comfortable. I certainly never felt that I, I was uh, allowed to have my position. Uh, I knew that every week that didn't matter whether I was playing for club or country, I was still fighting f- for the opportunity to play for England. Um, you know, even in the 12 months out from the final, uh, you know, Lewis Moody was like pushing all three of us incredibly hard for a starting berth. Um, and, 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 and just on that, really, so would the senior management coaches, would, would they make you aware of that? Is that something that you would talk about or is just something that you felt? Uh, I think that for me, that was a personal feeling. Uh, I think in terms of individuals, they were all, they were all, they probably all had uh, a different approach from, you know, whether it's, whether it was Clive or other members of the, the, the coaching management team. Um, you know, the, the fact that Lewis was given um, two starts, uh, in November 2002, uh, one for Backy, one for Lawrence. Um, you know, it, it made you think, well, the third one's coming your way. Um, but it, it, you know, it didn't. All I wanted to do was was to play well, uh, play for club and country. And you you knew that was around performance on the pitch, but you also knew it was around the preparation that got you right to perform on the pitch. So in, in, in terms of if we just stick with that 2003 sort of group and, and we stay around culture, I mean, yeah, sort of how, how did it feel? And so it barely talks about sort of hear, see, feel type stuff. I mean, what sort of stuff were you sensing? What, what words would you use? What experiences did you have around that time? 
uh, yeah, there was a there was a lot of drive. Um, you know, there was a lot of conversations around what world class behaviours look like. Um, the, the expectation of you as a player um, on yourself, on the group, and the you know when you've got someone like Martin Johnson as your captain, there's an unrelenting um, not pressure, but there's an unrelenting drive that you have to be performing all the time. Um, you, you can have your qualms around whether you think you're training too much, training too little, but you can bet your bottom dollar on you which one Martin Johnson was, was going to say you were doing. Um, but you know, on the flip side, you know, if you, you know, we got to, I suppose, a um, semi-final of a World Cup and we felt that we were overtraining. That was probably the first time I ever heard Martin Johnson go, yeah, I agree. And as soon as it went to Clive, that, that was the end of it. We, we were training less. Right, and 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 that we clearly that relationship between captain and coach and senior players is that. I mean, were you, you part of that, and sort of how how did that play out? No, no, no. I, I mean, we we had um, we had leadership groups. Uh, we had position specific captains. Um, you know, I suppose well, Bucky would have been the defensive captain, and if he hadn't played, then yes, I, I would step up. Um, but yeah, we, we we already had. I mean, in that final, we had something like seven players in the starting fifteen that had captained England and had done a good job of it. Um, we also had players that were on the bench or who were in the team who actually then went on to captain England. So, yeah, the leadership density in that group was was incredibly high. Um, you could argue ridiculously high, actually. Billy, if you could ask one question about two thousand and three, your Philly, what question would you ask him? You, and, you, and you don't have to stay around the sort of cultural stuff, but what, yeah, are, are you curious about anything? I, I know you guys have lots of conversations anyway. Yeah, well, I won't ask him about the evening after the final. <laughs> <laughs> I know a bit about it, and it's probably not for <laughs> public consumption. But no, I, I tell you what I was thinking about. I got stuck. There were no taxis, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I tell you what I was thinking when you were just chatting there was... Um, like what comes up loads when 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 we talk about culture or when when particularly Olympic sports have maybe have some challenges with their culture is that there's either an individual or a situation that really tests the culture of the team. Um, either an individual that sits outside of the way that you do things but is potentially a really good player, or a situation where someone behaves in a way that's not quite right, but um, and it's not necessarily dealt with well. Like if, what what would you say was the situation either? during that World Cup or in the build-up that, that sort of tested that culture and how did the team, or how did it, how did the team and the management manage it? Uh, no, we, we had an incredibly galvanising uh, couple of days, I suppose, in 2000. Uh, well, we probably had a couple, actually. One was the ability to actually beat Southern Hemisphere team away from home, which we did in South Africa, summer of 2000. Um, but we also had the... Yeah, you know, not, not something we were incredibly proud of, but we had a moment where I suppose our beliefs and the RFU's beliefs weren't on. You know, they weren't they weren't they weren't together. Yeah. Uh, there was and there were two days where we were out of camp. Uh, you know, in essence, we were on strike. We were being labelled as on strike. Um, now, yeah, that was that wasn't an easy process to go down that route. Um, it was it was something we tried to avoid at all costs. Um, but it but it happened, uh, and it was something that, you know, there wasn't a unanimous uh, agreement to start with, but we got to a unanimous front. Um, 
we worked our way through it. We worked our way, our way through it with the management, with the RFU, and ultimately we 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 turned out for Jason Lennon's hundredth cap that weekend um, with a position that we felt was fair. Um, but we all had to stick together to do it, and it felt incredibly uncomfortable while we were doing it. But it was principled that how we thought we were being, or how we wanted to be treated. And how did those conversations get like? How, like, I'm guessing, is that everyone in a room and everyone, you like, it's been ideas thrown out and people on different sides of things? How, like, describe those conversations, like, who was leading them? I'm, I'm fascinated by that. We, we had a senior leadership group, which had strong individuals and well-respected players mm. uh, within it. And obviously, they, 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 they led on that. Right. Um, they led on that with the, the powers that be. Uh, they fed back in the information. Ultimately, we were asked our thoughts. It, bounced back and forward, mm. came back to the point that I've just discussed. And mm. once once we'd reached what was deemed as a fair position, it was right, we now need to put everything behind us that was not necessarily acrimonious or mm. was acrimonious and uh, move on. Cool. cool. Guys, I want to just shift focus a little bit. I want to now talk about mental health. Uh, and I want to talk it in a sort of a sort of from performance, because there's a little bit of a, um, yeah, it's a, I, I, I'm definitely feeling the tension around that, because clearly high performance, it isn't comfortable. I've, I've been around it. I, I didn't partake in it too much as a, as, a, as, a, as a player, but certainly I've been around it quite a lot. Billy, I want to start with you. What sort of stuff's going on? What stuff did you notice, uh, probably during your experiences within UK sport around this issue of high performance and mental health? Yeah. Um, it, to be honest, it's probably the thing that's that's been the biggest learning curve or the biggest acceleration of learning from my perspective, from a psychology. Like you, you'd think that psychologists would have a really firm stance and a, and a significant amount of experience around mental health. But but certainly from a sports psych perspective, like that's that's not the case. And there are still numerous sports psychs out there who will not want to get involved in mental health they'll they'll say that's not I'm, I'm a performance psychologist I don't want to get involved with it which I I actually don't agree with I think that's a um, pretty scary position to take um, so but but from my perspective that's like I said the biggest learning journey for me that's probably one of the biggest influences as to why I've joined in changing minds is because it's it's a combination of clinical psych and sports psych um, and that combination I think is stronger than than any one individual in isolation. Um, from a from a sort of UK sport perspective, um, I, I I suppose that there was lots and lots over the last two. I mean, let's be honest. The, the concept is much more thought, sort of well thought about and, and talked about in than it was like even when I was at rugby. Um, some of the processes that are in place now in in terms of sports and how they look after mental health, I don't I think has changed drastically since. Like, and that's only four years ago. Um, I, I, I think the fact that society talks about it more um, makes a difference. I think, uh, so to be honest, the biggest thing that I see on a sort of day-to-day -day basis is now pretty much every Olympic sport, certainly every sport that I work in now has what is called a well-being group or a, I mean, lots, they call them lots of different things. Cricket calls it one thing. Um, rowing calls it another thing. But, but we'll have people that, interact in and around or, or support athletes mental health so that's typically a psychologist possibly numerous psychologists performance lifestyle pdw um doctor 
often often physio um in the really good sports there's a coach that's part of that part of that um conversation um but i'll be honest that's not happening in every single sport i've seen and that group will get together either weekly or monthly and go right who are the people that we we are worried about have any well-being or mental health concerns and how, how are we going to best support them um and i think that's best practice um I I think that's 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 accelerated pretty quickly to the point that, like I said, now I'm pretty certain most, if not all, um, Olympic sports or Paralympic sports will have one of those in place. Um, Mate, can I can I just jump in there? Well, because oh, yeah. I mean, some of this possibly is just language. What's the difference between well-being and mental health? Um, look, I. Personally, I see very little. Um, I, I think mental health is an all-encapsulating, all-encapsulating um, term that that um and well-being is part of that like if you look at the world health organization definition of mental health the first words are a state of well-being and then it describes some 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 more things around it so i think the two are um absolutely joined up it's interesting that i think mental health there are lots of sports that still don't like that term or still still feel uncomfortable using it so they'd rather call it a well-being group because i think everyone goes well well-being is something we should all work towards whereas mental health has still got this little bit of a stigma that it's it's something that only only doctors or only psychiatrists can deal with mental health um challenges which i i again i think is rubbish um i think everyone has the capacity to influence someone's mental health every interaction matters but but there is still a difference that exists i think if you got especially in the sporting landscape really cool. uh, what have you noticed in rugby it doesn't have to be your your current experiences with with your few, but what sort of stuff have you noticed over the time as a player? Good, good you know, and and then your many roles. What sort of stuff have you noticed around mental health, well-being within rugby union? The, the challenges on the modern player that are that much greater. Um, you know, we thought we were being scrutinised when, yeah, when when we were players, but now that everything everything is that yeah, any, anyone who gets onto one of these you know chat rooms or you know is out out socially is open to interpretation for what they're up to um you know it, it could be completely innocent um but we know that a, a picture can tell a thousand stories and it's which one you want to print um you know it's very difficult for players to you know be able to switch off um particularly if they're out in the public and yeah that that has its challenges i think for some and uh, it's it's very easy um, to to read information about yourself, pick up newspaper articles, and um, very easy for people who are anonymous to 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 throw negative comments players' ways. How how, yeah. how did you deal with it? And mate, sorry to interrupt. Well, what what were your experiences? Yeah, I mean, in, only if you want to share. What what um, how did you? What were your strategies around it? How did it impact on you? Did you have moments where, yeah. I mean, because clearly people are aware of your injuries. You just have to look at your knees <laughs> to have a look. Like you clearly had some times where you weren't playing. Yeah, just yeah. E explore mental health from a Richard Hill MBE point of view. Um, well, just just around the injury. I mean, clearly that's one of the the, the most susceptible times, I'm sure, for many players. And you know, I had three three months out. Uh, sorry, six months out of the game with a ACL reconstruction. Came back for well, probably less than three months and was out again for another 16 months with the second ACL reconstruction. So, you know, that was a challenging period. Um, more by luck than anything. Uh, it just so happened it was at a time where 
I'd agreed that I'd have a book that would come out. So um, it was during the, all the research part. So I had a guy, the guy, a ghostwriter who came around, Tony Lawrence, and you know, every two weeks we'd meet up. Uh, he he had some some newspaper cuttings that my parents had put together for about 20 years. So, you know, they, he had a chronological, um, you know, set of information that he had. And, and we, we would go through, we'd start off each week. We'd talk around what I've been up to for the last week or two. Some of the challenges that have come with that, particularly with the physical side of the knee, possibly the pain, but also trying to get back fit, the, the pressure of wanting to be back by a certain period, but not making that deadline. And then we'd go through a year year of my, you know, I suppose, my life. Um, probably when I've read the first transcript of the book, um, I realized that I'd probably been going through counseling with somebody who just wasn't qualified for that role at all. But he'd allowed, he'd given me a, a space in which I could open up and I could talk. Um, and I, I was doing it. Um, I mean, yeah. so was that deliberate? Did well, were you aware of afterwards? Did you go oh, look that that feels great? I I think I should do more of that. I'm looking forward to this. Is that did did you see that as a strategy around you coping with mental health? It was or? not a deliberate strategy in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it was an, a complete accident. Uh, if it hadn't been prearranged, I don't think it would have ever happened. Um, at which point, obviously, life becomes a little bit different. Okay, so just to stick on the rugby side with you, Hilly, what stuff have you noticed recently? What, how's rugby union approaching mental health? What sort of what sort of stuff have you heard or seen? Uh, look, the you know clearly the players' association, the RPA, have, have, have you know made some massive strides on that. Uh, they've put some protocols in place, some strategies, some people. More importantly, yeah, people. Um, you know, the the players would be aware that there is a helpline, uh, there is someone to talk to, and. By going on to there, then with their permission, there there are avenues around how how that can be progressed, how that can be you know face to face or long distance, you know how however the player feels most most comfortable, you know I I can't sit here and say that I'm an expert in this, um, yeah, but acutely aware that yeah we we need to be looking out for one another, yeah play, player well coaches to players, player to player, and you know you know staff to staff. And are you going to sense that those conversations are happening? Because certainly, yeah, yeah, and even three to five years ago, there was still a mentality around, look, just get on with it, man up, that type of language. Do you, do you, do you, do you get a sense of that that has changed, is changing, it's got some way to go? Uh, I'd, I'd certainly see that as, as part of everyone's role. I certainly see it as one of my roles in terms of making sure that, you know, you have an acute awareness around what's going on, what are, what are normal behaviours, what are behaviours that are out of the norm and, you know, players that I particularly, you know, enjoy having a conversation with. Um, you know, what, what impact that has with them, you know, what, what level they're at or whether they believe they're at, I don't know. But, you know, clearly, the, you know, I suppose the importance is, is, is to have your eyes open and make the observations. Okay, Belly, anything to, and I'm not going to call it top tips because I think it would be, it would be too trivial for, for, for this, but I mean, what sort of stuff would you, you know, yeah, what stuff would you want to talk about? So coaches would, would be listening to this. What sort of, what, what sort of information would you give your coaches? I, I, I start with, and maybe this is obvious, but I just, I, I do think it's worth saying is that like the, that concept, like 
I don't think we should be making that sort of tough environments or even the phrase man up. Like, I don't think we should be banning that under all circumstances. Like there are circumstances where, especially if you if in elite environments where people are going to have to tough it out and, and sometimes that feedback is going to help them get through that. It's just not to be using that as a one size fits all sort of stick that you're, you're using to sort of beat people with. And, and I, that's my sense of how things are changing is you've just, you like, forget who used this phrase, but you've you got to have a, like a different set of golf, you've got to have a set of golf clubs of, of the different ways that you might um, act or work with, with, with athletes. You've got to be able to use different clubs at different times and hit different shots. So um, I, if, of all the things, if I had one top tip, um, which I still don't think anyone does particularly well um, or, or, or certainly really well is like genuinely understand your players, like genuinely be curious and, and have an understanding of who they are, what makes them tick, what motivates them, what's it like at home, what's it like with parents, like the amount of times I've run a some version of a sort of what I would call a formulation session, but a, a session where we're trying to work out why does a player behave the way that they do. And you ask the room of, of people that work with this individual on a day to day basis, and they don't know what the situation at home is like, a mum and dad together? Are they not together? How many sisters, brothers have they got? Because mm. all of those things have clearly influenced the person that's sitting in front of you. So if I had one tip, it would be spend more time trying to understand who that individual is and then tailor your, your techniques rather than um, than just having, all right, this is how I'm going to coach this group of players. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, you actually got a shout out the other night when we did a pod, but I'm going to talk about, well, I'm going to talk about Hilly and these twins. So Peter Walton and Hilly are the best two that I've, <laughs> So when you when you used to do the formulation, so that you know we would right. Let's start talking about the person first. Yeah. Uh, which I'm going to come back to. It was like everybody would just look at Waltz yeah. and or Hilly and go, because everybody would know that they would have that information more so than anybody else. I mean, my it's something I've been doing since I met you. To be perfectly honest, is that I sort of banned conversations about the player until we've had a conversation about the person. So even at the bar at Tyndale, if we come off then we've done the under 12s often coaches just want to get straight into how they've played and what have we noticed about them as a player and I just go whoa 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 I, I want to talk so if we're going to talk about James I, I want to talk about him as a person so what sort of stuff do you know about him first and I think if we just have that mentality of course we want to get into a player but I think we should always be starting with the person so what have we noticed what stuff do we know um How's that work with the coaches at Tyndale or whoever else you've done it with? Yeah, it's but. good. I mean, you've you've got to keep on giving people a nudge. I'll be honest. I'm I'm really conscious of it now, but it did take me a time to actually just have that mindset that I want to get to know. I have. I'm not sure if I'm meant to keep the information, but I have huge amounts of information about yeah. people because I know it's important. It's really important. Mm. The stuff that's important. So if you'd ask, ask somebody about what's important here, they wouldn't start talking about themselves as a player. They'd start talking about something else. Mm. So I, I just want to now move on to relationships. So again, word that's often sort of banded around. Um, I read a very detailed article a number of years ago around coaching and fundamentally the conclusion was great coaches <laughs> build great uh, relationships. Um, what's your take on it? What's the best you've seen? How would you do it? You know, how would you build their relationships? Some coaches aren't that comfortable at it. Me or Hilly? Hey, let's go you, Billy. Um, well, I, well I, I know, again, it sounds obvious, but you, and, but you don't just have to apply it to coaching. I could apply that to psychology. There's, there's a whole abundance of evidence that the therapeutic relationship, if you want to use the, the, the fancy title, is, is 
that is often the thing that has the biggest impact on behavior change or, or whatever outcomes you might be working to. So I think it's everything. I think it's line managers. I think it's um, anyone that you're having to work with, like the, it's fundamental to have a positive relationship with them or at least some version of a relationship. So, um, I mean, there's, there's loads of people that do this really well. I, I could easily pick out, like you said, Walks and Hilly and, and, and actually you're downplaying yourself because I know you haven't got as much green energy as, as, as those two, but you've always been interested in, in, um, in players and, and who they are on their backgrounds. But a sport that does this, I think incredibly well is boxing. Um, so there's a guy called Rob McCracken who is, his title is a performance director but he's actually a head coach like he's he is he's he, he still coaches he's Anthony Joshua. Coach, isn't he? he's a guy that comes out and coaches Anthony Joshua and just for you continue that's the name that I hear a lot of so I'm wandering around and I'm asking about who yeah. is where is people go boxing you want to go and yeah. check out this guy and I, and I tell you what because the, the, you're right he does coach AJ so you'd think like if he wanted he could just coach AJ that could be his job he would make a lot of money from that if he wanted to um, but he's he's still coaching all of the development athletes the the amateur athletes that are going to the games let's be honest lots of boxing athletes will come from a relatively um, sort of social deprivation background or, or won't have they certainly won't have grown up in in, in nice houses and gone to public schools and they, 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 they will have had some challenging upbringing and, and he's able to adapt and work with lots of these different kids. And they, and the, the thing that I heard, so there's a guy called Josh Boazzi who he, was, he went to the last games. He's now a pro, but I heard him talking about the environment that Rob creates and the relationships that he creates. And, and he genuinely says it is just like a family. Like when you are part of that family up in Sheffield, you, or, or that environment up in Sheffield, you feel like, they're your brothers. They feel like Rob is essentially the dad. They won't say that to him, but, but he is. Um, and, um, and, and that they, it feels as strong as any connection they've got from a, from a family perspective. I mean, you want to talk about relationships, family, typically where you've got the strongest ones. Um, you've got the strongest emotional connections. You've got the most amount of time spent. So if you can create that in a training environment um, uh, with kids that would probably typically not want to, use the terms like family and, and like, then you're clearly doing something pretty special. Um, so yeah, he's, he's, he's a good example. Yeah, mate, that's cool. Hilly, how, how did the, um, how do England do this? How do, how do, how are they um, explicit around building relationships? What sort of, you know, what sort of things have you seen? What's worked well for, for you in the past? Around for me, it's, it's around just spending time with people, sitting down, trying to build that relationship. I suppect probably some of the best information I've ever received out of players is when I'm not meant to. Well, I haven't. I haven't deliberately gone to to find it. Um, you know, you've. You know, I've certainly been in scenarios where you know you hear about a player who's not learning incredibly well, struggles to take in information, and it'll be over a series of conversations. It'll just come out. Oh, I had classroom support. Out of interest, what was the classroom support for? They tell you, and then it's like, well, what strategies did that person come up with? Well, it, you know, it might be as simple as, well, write things down, speak out loud, and be tested. And go, well, have you ever done that with your rugby? No, I've never thought to do that. Well, you know, how about we start doing it? And it, you know, and it, then it makes a difference. And once it starts making a difference, then of course, you know, that that increases that relationship because there's that element of trust that grows. Um, other players potentially hear about how you've had a, a positive impact on someone, they, you know, and they want to they want to follow suit. 
Um, you know, look at look at that group of young players that came through Saracens all at, all at a certain period. Um, you know, a lot of that would have been around mutual sharing. Um, you know, the relationships they grew, the understanding they had with one another, uh, the success that probably one of them had before the others, and then the others want to copy. Um, so that the, when that sort of thing happens, and it happens because, you know, of some sort of relationship or some sort of interaction that they may have had with a, a team psychologist or a coach, then they all start striving to find out, well, what difference can you make for me? Yeah, mate, that's cool. I, and apologies for doing that. I want to jump back because I meant to ask you a question that I just, I just went over. It's around coaches. Um, so we spoke a, a bit around mental health of sort of environments and it's often around the management team towards the players. Well, what have you both noticed about coaches? Because I'm definitely not, even on a Sunday morning, so I'm wandering around on a Sunday morning and I'm seeing high levels of stress. <laughs> People who are actually, their heart rate will be risen, they'll be sweating, their frontal cord, you know, they're, they're not making very good decisions because uh, you kind of you know, see them in a, or you know them in, in, in a different type of environment. Yeah, what sort of stuff are you, are you noticing about coaches, Belly? Um, so... It, interestingly like I said I joined changing minds that they will say that they get more so that and this is a group of clinical psychologists who who they their specialty speciality is mental health um they get more referrals from coaches and support staff than they do from athletes so like we have I, I don't know whether it is a fallacy or not but that I think there is this almost unwritten rule that when we're talking about mental health it must be about athletes but but from my perspective coaches and support staff are just as at risk, probably more so, um, because they 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 still have all of the same demands. They have all of the travel. Like if I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Olympic and Paralympic now, but they'll be away from their families for long periods of time. They're up early. They've got responsibility for for delivering outcomes, delivering success. Um, that so of course they're just as susceptible. Um, the I don't think coaches ask for help as much as they should. Um, I actually think if you ask me the best coaches, what I see as the best sort of examples is, is coaches that are willing to be vulnerable, coaches that are willing to acknowledge that they might be struggling at times, coaches that are willing to ask for help and actually tell their players that they're doing that. If you want to create a psychologically safe environment, you want to create an environment that, that promotes well-being alongside performance, that's the quickest way to do it. And I've, so... I won't talk about him because I've only just started working with him and I don't know whether he's comfortable with me talking about it, but I'm, I'm working with a coach right now that's, that is like literally in three sessions, I've been blown away by how willing to acknowledge his own limitations, willing to acknowledge how he might be struggling. Um, and he really reminds me of Southgate. I think Southgate's a really good example of this as someone who just like is so real about his own stuff that's going on. I thought what he did during the World Cup and how he talked about his own self-care was a real was 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 really impressive um and, and, and again I, I do hear lots of coaches reference Southgate as they and some people are going to do what i do they go the modern coach um <laughs> as if it's like a new thing or if it's a, like a bit yeah. weird and stuff to me it's just normal he's yeah he's just trying his best to be really good and he's just being honest and you know he's not superhuman he's not superman he bleeds and feel the same as yeah absolutely of, of lots of other people Hilly again back to back back to rugby what sort of stuff have you noticed from sort of coaches sort of coaches looking to support each other or yeah looking to sort of reach out around their mental health 
Uh, look, I think we're probably going through a period where it's one of the biggest challenges that anyone's faced. You know, players or coaches who feel like they should be doing something all the time. That's the environment that, you know, everyone, a professional sport lives in. And, you know, they've been so used to working at 100 miles an hour, hectic lifestyles, always on a computer, always watching video, always talking to a player. They're all, they're all of a sudden in a period now where the opportunity to have hands-on has very much disappeared. Um, so, you know, I've had conversations with, with coaches and yeah, during this period and, you know, some of them have utilized it incredibly well to have a rethink around how they're doing how they're doing things uh, they're enjoying the fact that they've been able to have some time to themselves um you know physically regenerating as well as mentally regenerating um in terms of the practical nature of it clearly once once you're in camp once you're around teams as staff you're trying to give the best reassurance to a group of players that you can um so you know you do have to give that outwardly facing um uh, thought that of, of con constant positivity uh, that that you're in full control um, but then it's you know again it comes down to those relationship you have with other staff around picking up what what you're seeing and what and, and what you're hearing um, you know only on a personal level and, and and you know then have those conversations that you feel like you need to have with a, a, a coach or a staff and yeah, you know, there'll be times where I'm, I'm sure that you know, as 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 best as anyone, I I, I need people around me. Um, you know, I need people to talk to. I need people to offload. That doesn't mean it. You know, what I say is my, is is my overall thought. It just might need that I need to talk it out loud to someone else. Um, you know, as 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 alluded to with the book earlier in in this podcast. Um, yeah, the power of talk is probably the biggest thing that we can give to anyone. So my understanding around it, importantly. So, so sorry, mate. And so my understanding is, and it's just from talking to a couple of people currently in the management team, is that you guys actually schedule in regen. So you you guys would talk about um, your own um, as a management team. Wouldn't just be the coaches; it would be everybody in the management team. How can you schedule in your own regeneration, both physically, mentally, emotionally? I mean, is that something that's quite new? And how does it actually play out? Uh, it's, it's, it's not new. Um, we've all been challenged that over over the years. Um, you know, you you know, everyone has a threshold. Um, everyone needs to understand how they work best, and it, it, it's trying to come to the conclusion or the solution um, that suits you best. In camp, it's an incredibly as you know, hard working environment. Um, you know, there's you know, each department has different responsibilities. The other medical departments, are, you know, anywhere you go. You know, it's round the clock, you know, players dropping in, dropping out. Um, but it is about making sure that you give yourself time to, to, to download. Um, you know, that, that ability to, to, to shut off. Um, you, you, you can't be doing it 24-7 for seven days a week. You know, it's, um, you know, it just becomes too challenging. Too no, draining. Um, Eddie, who's coming on the podcast, actually, on Sunday, he's sort of hanging out with Rusty. He has a reputation, and I've been around him a little bit. Around, I mean, he's a he's. I mean, he's a workaholic. He's up early. He goes to bed late. He, I, I mean, what stuff have you noticed about him? How 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 does he sort of very generate himself? Does he? What sort of stuff does he talk about? I'm certainly giving no secrets away on Eddie. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's an it's 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 open. It's out there. Eddie is one of the yeah hardest working men you'll, um, people you will ever come across. Um, has some incredible hours. Um, yeah, but he has he has his own ways of, re of regenerating. Yeah, you know, he'll openly say that. 
Um, I'm pretty sure we all know what they are. Um, you know, but but that's what works for him, and you know, he he will he will stick to that. I'm sure daily. Yeah, I get that. I, I, and I think what I was getting at, I used to work in a previous life with somebody who used to sort of say, oh, look, I think you should be looking after yourself. And then he would send me an email at like five o'clock in the morning. And and it just kind of, it just, yeah, it's a little bit around your expectations. And I, 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 do, I did feel influenced. I, um, I felt influenced. Well, this is the, you know, this is what's happening. Yeah, it, it definitely impacted on my behavior. Yeah. What you it's horses of courses, and you you know you you've got to be prepared to be open with someone if if the, if there's a way of life that doesn't work with you. I'm not I'm not saying you're always going to get the answer you want or the solution you want, but you've at least got to go down the route of questioning that. Okay, cool. I, I want to shift to the pathway. So yeah, a number of environments will have some form of some form of pathways. So the community clubs. It's about you know moving people through and you know, just sort of noticing who's probably going to play first team, who might move on from, from the club, who's going to look to fulfill in the teams and stuff. What sort of stuff did you notice of your time together in the pathway? What was the best stuff? So I'm going to start with you, Belly. What was the stuff that you really liked and what you think in hindsight, either you or the pathway could have done better? Um, I, I loved working in the RFU pathway. It was class. Um, uh, so what did I like? Um, I, I so I really liked like it genuinely felt multidisciplinary. So I'm I'm picturing when we're in Swansea and we're at the under eighteen um, sort of version of the Six Nations. I forget what you what the exact title of that competition was, but um, we'd always we we'd go out to training. One of the things that was like always really good is everyone is invited into the training environment. So I've been in some environments where it's like the the training environment is almost the coach and the athletes and no one else comes in. Whereas in in rugby, everyone's on the pitch. Everyone is is observing. Everyone's part of it. It could be that you're running drinks. It could be that you're you're doing a debrief with the players in a in a huddle. There's there's so much going on, and so that's really cool. That obviously helps from a sort of sports science perspective of feeling engaged, feeling involved. And then, but then the bit I really loved was we'd come back and we'd sit around that 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 sort of mini little room that the little office that we'd created or Charlotte would create and and we'd have some just really good conversations about the players and about what was going on for them and then ideas and it just um like you might have someone like Rick in there who'd throw out like something that was so left field or or, or, or in my head would have been random but then add like was such a stimulus and we just it was those types of conversations I thought that was that was amazing um and then there was I just thought there was a really good understanding of the players at that point like in in time, and you look at how many players have then gone on from that 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 um, that period. Um, like just a really good understanding of those players, their strengths. How can we get the best out of them? How can we how can we genuinely test them and stretch them and expose them to things they wouldn't normally be exposed to? I thought I thought that was a real strength of of the pathway. And how would you make it better? On, on reflection, going oh look, I've, if I'd had my time again, we'd do this this this. I'd... I always struggle a bit with that. What stuff are you thinking? Sorry, say that one more time. Mate. Um, so yeah, just how do you think it could be better? Um, well, from a pathway perspective, Hilly might say this is different now, um, but considering Lanny was from the pathway, I didn't think the connection to the senior team was what it, what it could and should be. Um, and I... I think that um, I, I think generally sports 
I think every sport is almost chasing this holy grail of how can we help people if we create these brilliant development environments like I think was created in, in, in rugby, how can we then have an understanding of that player and then help their transition into the England team? And I still think at that point it was happening a little bit by accident rather than by design. And I think when you've got all of the knowledge that the people in like that around that room that I was just talking about of the players, then there should be a better way to then think about, well, how do we transition them into a senior England environment? Especially when you've got someone like Hilly who has an unbelievably intimate understanding of what that senior England environment is going to look and feel like. Um, and I think, I think, but I do think every sport could do that better. Um, uh, every sport, I, is there any sport that does it well? Or they all could do better, would be on their report? I genuinely can't think of one that I go, I'm, I'm really impressed by how that sport does that. I, I mean, it, yeah, it's certainly something that I've noticed. You're doing a little bit around some Olympic sports and UK sport. Um, yeah that transition i am going to come on to the transitional piece in a minute but hilly what was the stuff what stuff did you enjoy when you were working with belly um at that time in the pathway and how would you have made it better at that um time? uh look, the bit, bit i loved was um working with um bellywood sorry i've got some really good news just come through that's all so um very happy you to share or is it just no, 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 it's just good news, that's all. Okay. Um, I've had the thumbs up, it's a good. Um, it's, um, it, it, was, it was around the, the... Belly is the psychologist, I was the rugby, but we married it together incredibly well to, to utilise our strengths and potentially our weaknesses uh, around trying to get the best out of players. So whether it was case formulation, um, you know, working in collaboration with the, the, the clubs, um, clearly they have a massive part to play in, in how, how our structure works with young players and development of them and you know, how they need to play for their premiership clubs to be able to you know, force their way into our environment at the seniors. Um, so, yeah, being able to get a collaborative approach, just trying to work on maybe some of the resilience of some of our players. How do we work? And Belly would come in with some some strategies around how a player can cope with pressure, uh, how they can try and alleviate some of the signs of it, how they can get their composure back. And then it might be my responsibility to ramp that up in training. But we would do it in collaboration with the player as well. You know, certainly remember one over a weekend that, you know, we'd spoken to the club, we'd spoken to the individual to get permission to do it. We didn't tell him when we would ramp up the pressure. Uh, Belly had talked around strategies of what he needed to do, particularly around the line out. And then during the session, I slowly prodded, agitated, you know, and then pulled back. Uh, then I'd go at it again and then we would just review it afterwards and, and the player was completely open to it. I thought it was a you know incredible weekend uh, where that player learned a lot lot a lot about himself and, and learned a lot about line out calling. Um, you know that was a sort of interaction. Uh, you know, Belly mentioned the the Six Nations Festival down down in Wales. Um, you know, for for a couple of years, we would also try and get their, say a group of players together and and try and get to know them a bit better. You know, just similar to what you've done. You know, prodding around some one word answers and maybe get them to elaborate. And you know, it's quite interesting, even over a, a three series, three international caps that you know these players would have got over an eight day period. You know, I'm sorry to say this, one of the players came back and said it was the best thing he did all week. Um, but, but on the basis, he said he got to learn so much more about the people he, were, he was playing with. Um, we did it between games two and three, and he felt that 
he actually went onto the pitch with a greater desire to play for his teammates afterwards. Um, you know, which goes to show it's all the components of, of everything that we do as a, as a management team that, that pull these players together. You know, you, you, know, you Rusty, um, Waltz did an incredible job in terms of rugby and then other people are looking to have their input, you know, whether it's, you know, medical team or, you know, administration, whatever, you know, operations, it doesn't matter what, what your role is. You're all trying it during that period and particularly those eight days to try and maximize what you can for that individual and, and ultimately, you know, how they, how they can bring themselves together as a team. Yeah, mate, that's cool. I just want to, and how would you make it better? What sort of stuff did you on reflection during that time? Yeah, you know, I, I think probably the more we did it, we'd have got better at it. I mean, certainly, um, yeah, memory serves me right. We had one player who who came out who 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 made not a statement. He he told us about something, and neither of us knew how to react. And ultimately, we had to react uh, retrospectively. Um, yeah, to, to share the information, but you know. You know, it, it was a challenge for us on the day in terms of straight away afterwards, we both looked at ourselves and we both, you know, felt, oh my God, what, you know, how could we have done that better? What, what should we have done? And, you know, we went and spoke to the player and, you know, I think he found it cathartic just to say it, but ultimately it was the response of his teammates around him afterwards that was, you know, it was incredible. You know, how they wanted to just go, wow, I didn't know that. That's brilliant. Amazing. Well done. Yeah, mate. Look, I'm going to share. So, my alleys would be in the case formulation. I think we're barely brought in. And to be fair, I think barely coming part of the team was just a game changer. Completely changed um, um, in terms of the programme for the, for, for the good. You know, lots of people, lots of coaches think they're psych, psychologists. And to be fair, lots of them would have some good strengths around it. But to have somebody who would better explain some of the evidence and the science behind it and then have some strategies around it and definitely belly i'm sure you can remember we you know we had lots of conversations on the phone and i found it hugely hugely supportive and hugely beneficial but i, I really like the case formulation that actual process of 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 um supporting the player i thought that was sensational just around the meetings my strategy on meetings is i wouldn't make them too formal on purpose and i wouldn't have too many because i think you prevent People having conversations that, in my opinion, they should be having yeah. and it should be relatively informal. However, I do probably feel as though, on reflection, I think I probably needed a stronger framework around that, actually put some stuff in that people knew it was coming. So if they're not as comfortable as what I would be, just going and having a conversation and grabbing a coffee and, and sort of, group, you know, group, sort of grabbing some people, then then that would, would have been it. And one thing that Stuart Lancaster always used to say to me is, Fletch, it's about time with people. It's about time with players. So if you're in a program, you've got to fight for time because it does take time. You, you, you need to build some. So I think I would have, I would have sort of maybe, maybe try to get a little bit more time with players um, would be my reflection on the under-20s. Right, I, I want to get back to some psych stuff. Let's call it that. Mate, resilience, that gets a big shout out as well. It's a word that's used a lot. People are trying to find their point of view on resilience and they're talking about it. Go on, Belly, just shoot. What sort of stuff would you want to share on resilience? Again, mate, it's, it's definitely an overused phrase that maybe not, not with a particularly good shared understanding of what we mean by it. Um, what does it mean to you? Uh, 
so like generally people's ability to adapt and deal with challenging circumstances is is the sort of the outcome that you're looking for but the bit that i i i really really sort of strongly sort of advise against is this concept of either you've got it or you haven't got it um like i can I can find anyone in the world. If I, if I go and put them in a certain situation, they will probably be able to demonstrate some pretty resilient qualities. They'll be able to adapt to the situation and, but put them in a very different situation surrounded by different people with a different task and like that they would be com completely that, that resilience that they showed wouldn't necessarily sort of um, show up. So I, I have a strong view that it's, it's massively context specific. Um, and I suppose if there was one thing, Again, to, we use this phrase like around a resilience iceberg, um, and that like, you're trying, you're essentially trying to layer things on. Um, but it is very, very difficult to feel or to demonstrate resilient qualities when fundamentally you don't feel supported. So, if I would say the first step of trying to help someone be resilient is to make sure that they feel like they they've got people around them, they can ask for help, they feel safe. Um, that it's, it's very difficult to demonstrate those qualities without that being in place. Yeah, you might be able to on the odd occasion, but that's, and I don't think people would associate resilience with support. I think they, they think of it as this other quality, it's just like that fighting through and, and sort of digging it out. And, and actually, I think the people who demonstrate resilience most consistently and, and time after time are often people that feel the safest in the environment. Um, and if you want, I'll give you, I, I'm wary, I keep talking lots. Um, but the, the example I give is we, in cricket, we used to do like, but similar to sort of age group, like 16, 17 year olds, first drill we used to do with them. They come in for a sort of two week camp. It'd be a mental toughness camp, essentially a resilience camp. And, and we'd put the bowling machine on 90 miles an hour and we'd say, right, survive 18 balls. It's like, it's like that typical sort of dog fight. It's the last evening of a test match. You've just got to survive. Um, and and don't be thought, we thought we were amazing. We thought we'd create this really sort of challenging set of circumstances and we're going to learn who's got resilience and who hasn't. And, and when you ask the players after about it, the thing that actually impacted how they performed in that test was not about their skill or their ability to deal with that situation. It was, did they have mates that they knew in, that, that they come with? So a load of kids came from Sussex. Those kids from Sussex generally did pretty well because they felt a little bit more secure in that environment. The one random kid that came from, I'm going to pick a random... Hertfordshire, um, who, who didn't have any mates in that environment, was feeling a lot more, lot less secure, a lot less supported, was therefore less able to regulate himself in that in that situation. But we weren't thinking like that at the time. Um, so I think that's that would be my anecdote to try and bring that to life. Um, oh, nice, mate. Helly, what's your view on resilience? I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it that open. Uh, only. Only on a basic level, clearly I'll leave that one to the psychologist in terms of true understanding of it. I mean, we've all got different levels of resilience. Um, but let's not also forget that, you know, someone who we think is an incredibly resilient, tough character may not be able to demonstrate that, those characteristics all year. Uh, you know, they may have their own moments where where it's being challenged. And again, it all comes back to that support, that understanding, that ability to pick up those cues. You know, what, what are the cues? Because um, I think, you know, particularly if you look at players on a pitch, you know, they, they might display it differently. Um, some might go into their shell. You may not see them ball carry. 
whereas others might become incredibly vocal and you, you, you need to get them away from, you know, the referee or whoever it might be. Um, yeah, but again, the, that greater understanding of each other allows you to deal with it better. So, um, and actually, I want to flip back to Belly. So, so Belly, you've, and, and Hilly, I'm going to come and I'm going to ask you the same, same question. So, you talk about what's needed to um, help people develop resilience. Come, come up with some strategies around it, though. Actually, so assume that people are well supported. What's the best stuff of that, that you've seen around development? So, get into some, some tangible stuff that the coaches could maybe think about for an environment to develop resilience. What stuff? Have you noticed? Like generally speaking, Belly, I'll come in there because you know it, it's it's not a difficult scenario in terms of rugby. The the one that we would have done up at Queen Ethelburgers, you know, it, it's a, there's a, there's a team environment going on. Waltz is leading a line out, and we're you know we're trying to disrupt one of Waltz's players. Yeah. I mean, it's not that Waltz doesn't know that we we're, we're going to do it in this session, you know. But it was a simple case of trying to make sure that Waltz came up with. Um, yeah, almost a gamification of lineouts around. You know, you you win the ball, you move down the pitch. You know, you get a positive five meters for winning a lineout. Well, we were just. I was deliberately calling it a fail. You know, when it was probably ninety eight percent right. Now, clearly, the the player involved didn't like that. You know, and I might give him three on the trot, and then just go. Oh, look, we're pushing him a little bit far here. That, you know, this is the first day of doing it. Let's see how he reacts. He gets it. He gets composed again when I let him win three on the trot, and then you do two, and then he's back to where he was after three last time. And then you go right. That's enough. You know. Then myself and Belly would meet with the individual afterwards. Uh, you know. And then again, you don't want him to know where it's coming. So so you might wait a, a complete day before you layer it on again. And this time maybe you get. Maybe you get to four lineouts where you've deliberately messed him around, or five, and that's the progress you're trying you're trying to see. Nice, mate. That's a real good practical example, and I can I can I can remember that happening. Um, Belly, anything from you? Anything tangible that coaches could use around developing resistance in players, assuming that the the players or the environment's got good levels of support. Given that Hilly's just done, because the two bits you need in my mind generally are you need challenging, stressful adverse circumstances which Hilly's just described and then you need the player to have some coping strategies that, that work for him or her in that in that in that moment so alongside alongside what we do we were having conversations in the evening with that particular player and going right what what do you know that works for you when you're in these situations what typically happens to your thought process and how might you stop that and having a like generally speaking there is there's no one way to teach coping skills like you they're so individualized they need to be so well practiced and 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 specific or bespoke to that individual so helping the individual work out and trying well why don't i try this so i might try this breathing technique or i might try this thought stopping technique or i might try um i might try using my teammates to to to, to as, as a way of bouncing or, or, or sharing some of the the stress there's there's so many different ways you can do it but getting them to try different stuff and then see which bit works well and then let's use that more often um that as a general rule, if you combine those two things, I think you'd do it. You'd be on pretty firm ground. Very cool. Thanks for that. Look, I'm, I'm aware of time. I'm going to ask you what, uh, two last things. So the, the last question I'm going to ask is what's next? So maybe we think of that. However, I'm going to give you a chance to, because I'm not that great at this, Rusty's like king of podcasts. Is there a question that you assumed I would have asked? Or if you could ask yourself one question, 
what would it be? So what would be the killer question or a question that, and again, just be mindful of the audience, coaches, people sort of listen to this. So Billy, I'm going to go with you first, mate. What's a question that Rusty would have asked you that I haven't? <laughs> well, Rusty would have asked me about my um, my first ever experience of of delivering a session to you coaches and, and, how, and how that went down and how it was quite heavy on detail and, and not that not particularly high on sort of yellow energy and what I learned from that situation because um, he loves to ask me that question whenever he gets a chance <laughs> and yeah, he didn't yeah, and he, he would he would ask you when he was in the, in the most uncomfortable so <laughs> Rusty's go-to is he's he's in the car with somebody I, I should I should have an awareness of who this person is, and he just completely, who is it? You've coached with him, and I'm like, oh my, I'm dying here. Please help me out. He has zero, yeah. he has zero awareness of filtery around that how people might be feeling yeah absolutely well I, I didn't know Rusty wasn't on this call so I'm uh, like when you when it rocked up and he wasn't I was thinking oh, actually this is going to be a little bit easier than it probably would have been with Rusty on so yeah he gives uh, good feedback go on so 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 would that be the question would that be around our first first time or is there something um, uh, I Rusty asked loads of good questions I I, I think Rusty R Rusty might have asked a bit more about um, I'll tell you what I'll tell you what comes up lots that that you don't necessarily ask lots about but is um like the the concept of scouting um I'm, I'm thinking of my experience with nfl and the one really good bit i noticed from that was about 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 how they scout how they how they try and understand players before they make decisions in relation to sort of signing them or drafting them um and didn't you didn't ask about that and i suppose the, the role of a coach in that process um I would say that's like well certainly if you hear Eddie or or Clive Woodward talk about like selection is the most important coaching tool I, I think that's more of the case at the top end of the game than it is at the bottom but um or in, as, as part of development but um but yeah something about that okay next time mate that means there's going to be a part two I'm going to put that as my first question on part two right. Billy what's the what's the one question that you, th you would want to be asked or you thought I would ask or Rusty King of podcast would ask well, certainly, if it was Rusty involved, it would be some way to agitate or challenge me without being allowed me allowing me to know the question in, in advance. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good at that. Uh, yeah. Um, I, look, I'm, I'm I'm sure he would have probably wanted to know about individuals. Clearly, we can't talk around that, but I know that's probably what Rusty would do. Yeah, yeah. He, he probably would have tried to get you into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> like a little bit of trouble. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, good job. Right, guys, last thing, just what's next? What's going to be happening? So when we come out of this uh, current situation, what's the, you know, what stuff's exciting you? What's, what's, what, what's the next sort of six to 12 months going to look like? I, I think one of the most exciting things is about how we actually utilise this next six weeks or however long it might be. How does this potentially shape how we do things in the future uh you know certainly i'm racking my brain around how can you long distance learn long long distance participate um you know what are the challenges that can be set what's the learning that can be done um I, you know that i i think there's still so much more that i i can sort of like try and get my head around and i'm sure that's going to occur naturally in this period Certainly our generation are getting more used to virtual meetings and virtual mm. conversations and being really awkward around which button to press. And I've already had one house party this morning. 
<laughs> Sorrel and Marutoji, both, <laughs> both in their beds, which was a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> Just going to have to get used to it. Every time I talk to Russ, he's having the bath, he's wearing his bathrobe. <laughs> so, go on, Belly, what's next for, for you, mate? What's, what sort of... Uh, two things would be, one, the... I, I, I genuinely want, or certainly changing minds, want to have a stab at this uh, this concept of how can you genuinely understand players or, or and staff, but particularly players, and transition them into new environments. So, how can we get better at doing that? I think I think there's there's a really cool piece of work around that that's that that we're certainly going to try some different stuff. Um, and then the other bit, which I, I, in, I, I'm definitely going to reference because I think it's actually just as relevant for coaches as it is for psychologists, but um, I have a pretty strong view that sports psychs don't get or haven't got the sort of the frequency and and and, and quality of supervision that that they should. So supervision is essentially a bit like another word for mentoring or, a, a, like Kelly described, a reflective space that where you can think about your practice, you can think about what's going on. I don't think psychs, certainly in the sporting world, um, use that or, or access that enough. Um, but I actually think it's the same for coaches. So I think creating a space for coaches doesn't have to be called supervision, but for them to reflect on their practice, reflect on what they do, and 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 then I think that would make them more willing to or be more able to acknowledge some of the things that they find difficult. I think that those two things would be things that I'll think about lots and hopefully will be going on over the next couple of years. Well, guys, look, I appreciate your time. I know you've got something happening in the next couple of minutes, so thanks for everything. Um, we normally just do a, a, a one-word answer. I'm only going to do a few things. We're going to go belly hilly in turn. One word. Hilly, it's got to be... Once my clock is 29 minutes past, I've got to go for a meeting. <laughs> no. I'll ask you five things, Hilly, quickly. Rugby, one-word answer. What would it be? Enjoyment. Olympics. Elite. Family. Uh, grateful. Psychology. Important. Waltz. Twin. Gibbo. Glue. Strong, mate. Well done. Over and out to you. Belly, I'm going to ask you the same ones really quickly. Rugby. Bye. Bye-bye. Amazing sport. Olympics. Passion. Family. Everything. Psychology. Everyone's business. One-one, but I'll let you have it. Waltz. Ledge. Gibbo. Scary. <laughs> it's a good one for Gibbo. I think she'd be pretty chuffed with that. To be <laughs> yeah, normally that wouldn't work, but I think Gibbo would actually be quite happy with that. <laughs> she'd be pretty chuffed. That's Charlotte Gibson, who's, uh, sorry, Charlotte Gibbons. Uh, team... <laughs> Get her name right, Christ, she's <laughs> definitely not going to be happy with you. <laughs> um, team manager of England. Hilly's boss, I can say that because Hilly's gone. Yeah. Uh, mate, you're an absolute legend. There will be a part two. Thanks. Cool. very much for your time and I know you've got lots of stuff going on with Changing Minds so hope we're going to catch you soon appreciate Bye it now. cheers cheers, cheers mate. Good night. bye